The marijuana surge, opportunities and risks on the day when recreational marijuana goes legal in Canada. I am here in New York at MedMen. I'll tell you all about that to dig into this huge business and cultural trend. Now, I am the least qualified person in New York City to talk about marijuana, but I can ask questions, so I have got some of the most qualified people here with me in Midtown on Fifth Avenue at MedMen. Danny Danko, he is senior editor at High Times Magazine. Even I've heard of High Times Magazine. It immediately came to mind when I was like, who are we gonna talk to about the implications of this? He's the author of Cannabis, A Beginner's Guide to Growing Marijuana. And joining us from the West Coast, Adam Bierman, he is MedMen Enterprises CEO. This is uh, a business valued in the billions of dollars. Uh, MedMen has been acquiring other companies to take advantage of what is a global phenomenon that is really shifting the culture. So both of you, thanks for being with me. Thanks for having me here at MedMen. Um, Danny, first of all, did you think we would see this day? We're here on Fifth Avenue in this 2,000 square foot space. It's a very nice store. Something like this costs about a million bucks a year before you're even paying employees to, to occupy, and it's about marijuana. Did you see this coming? You know, uh, it's something we dreamed about, and it was a dream and a fantasy, but it's become real. So uh, on this historic and monumental occasion, as uh, you know, a major developed nation has legalized cannabis, it's, it's absolutely historic and amazing, and, and uh, it's something to celebrate. Uh, and, and Adam, as you look at what's coming out of Canada today and kind of positioning your business based on how things develop, what, what are you hearing? What are you thinking, what are you gonna be watching to see exactly how this is taking hold as recreational use in Canada becomes a, a legitimate thing? Yeah, it's less about you know, what we're watching for. I think we fully expect um, things to happen the way that I, I know that they will end up happening, which is marijuana is now legal in the country of Canada and everything's gonna be okay. In fact, everything's gonna be better. Um, you know, the legalization of marijuana makes the world a safer, healthier, happier place. Um, and that's been proven, you know, time after time as we've, you know, iteratively moved towards the end of prohibition here in the United States. And we're getting a front row seat to the preview of our own movie. Um, and that's, you know, that's what we're watching for, right? This is so cool that on this day, the first, you know, first time ever a, G, a G8 nation has legalized cannabis. Um, we get to see what it looks like. It's our neighbor to the north. And, you know, the end of prohibition for us here down in the United States isn't far behind. Now, Danny, this is already a big business but it, it hasn't been as above ground as, as many would hope. What changes now? And, and what do you see in terms of uh, the types of businesses that are scaling up? Here at MedMen, we've got this display on the wall that says, it's got stoner crossed out and says, grandmother, forget stoner, MedMen. This is a different sort of look and branding for what this industry is all about, right? Right. Well, that's the thing is people from all walks of life consume cannabis. It's not just the typical um, person people think of um, based on some type of stereotype. It's really everyone all around us, members of our families and seniors and veterans and people of all walks of life. Um, and what changes is now these Canadian companies are poised to do really well in this industry because they can do the banking that's necessary and they have the federal legislation that's necessary to actually do proper business. Culturally, what changes? I mean, you, you travel around the world, you're, you're a connoisseur, you're a cultural ambassador for uh, this business, for this industry. What, what in that do you see changing? Is there a taboo that's going away? Uh, Absolutely. What's happening? There's a stigma, and that stigma remains. Obviously, here in the States and still in Canada, they're expunging uh, you know, people's criminal records now. Um, but the stigma remains. People are still getting raided. People are still having their uh, li you know, being separated from their children, having their dogs shot, uh, losing the right to get a transplant, you know, losing their place on a transplant list. So there are serious real-world repercussions to marijuana prohibition. And every place that, that legalizes changes that, and, and those are injustices that won't be continuing to occur. Adam, uh, tell me about the evolution of Mad Men. You started out in this business, I believe, with a partner in dispensaries and grew from there. What was your vision 
from the beginning, and at what point did this really accelerate into something bigger than you know, individual locations? Well, I think, you know, the MedMen story runs parallel to the story of the end of prohibition for cannabis here in the U.S. When we started this business over eight years ago, I mean, that was the vision. The vision was that, you know, cannabis was a consumer product, cannabis as a consumer product, you know, and back to safer, healthier, happier, um, you know, giving people the opportunity, you know, destigmatizing cannabis, you know, welcoming people into this world and giving them the opportunity to replace other things that they're accessing now, whether they be, you know, pharmaceutical or alcohol. Um, with marijuana, you know, it just, it makes, it allows people to live their best lives. And so I think that, you know, the vision has always been that it will take time. It won't happen overnight, but as a business, if we built proper infrastructure and had the right team and the systems to go do it, and we were, you know, willing to make bold, bold moves like the Fifth Avenue store you're sitting in, that's a medical marijuana market. That's, tell me, you know, yeah, go yeah. ahead. Tell me about that because this is, Correct me if I'm wrong here, but doing the calculation, 2,000 square feet on Fifth <coughs> Avenue, that's at least a million dollars a year. There's a sign here on the table that says there are no marijuana products on display. What's, what's the idea? Because right now, uh, marijuana, not cannabis, not federally legal in the U.S. This is a bet you're placing on the future and maybe uh, staying a step ahead of future competitors? What, what's the strategy here? Yeah, and it's not about future competitors. I mean, look, we want everybody to be successful. All the people that are participating on the commercial side of this industry, there's nobody bigger fans than, than we are, right? We, we're building an industry while we build a company. In the store that you're in, right, it's not about competitors, it's about showing the world. Look what's happening today as you broadcast from that store. We're showing the world what legal cannabis can look like. We're showing politicians what legal cannabis can look like as we move towards the end of prohibition. You know, we're showing doctors and physicians, we're showing communities, we're showing grandmas, um, you know, we're showing working people, we're showing everybody, tourists. Think about New York and the reason Fifth Avenue and that store is so important. We're showing people from all over the world. We're letting them have an experience with legal cannabis. And when they leave that experience, the stigma has, you know, dissipated or gone away altogether, right? They've been welcomed into this new world. I like to look at it as, you know, living in black and white and living in color. We're welcoming people into the, the world in color. And, you know, that future is not too distant, right? The, the end of prohibition here is coming. I'm um, in a store like the one you're in or any of the stores that we have across the country. They're built for that, right? And so, you know, it's really as much about right. building an industry as it is about building MedMen. Danny, tell, tell me about some of the products that we see represented in the display here. Not exactly on display, but represented in. When I was growing up, uh, people were talking about um, smoking and maybe some edibles. But here we've got uh, pens, we've got, uh, I mean, there, there's some pills, there's some bottles. Well, what has this industry evolved into? There are even different levels of product. There's a display, how to shop at MedMen, and it's not just all about one thing you're looking for. Absolutely. So much has changed with uh, the, you know, prohibition ending and, and all of the science that has now entered into the equation and we're doing lab testing and finding out that um, there are compounds in within cannabis such as CBD, cannab cannabidiol, that are very helpful in reducing inflammation and all kinds of other symptoms that people have. So the ratio of THC to CBD is very important when you're looking for a medical dosage. And what you have here is a variety of different uh, dosages for different uh, ailments and different uh, instances like um, to go to sleep for people with insomnia, I'm gonna reach back right? Here. And uh, so there's all kinds of different, uh, you know, developments that have happened. And as marijuana becomes more legal, or as cannabis, you know, prohibition begins to crumble, we're we're having the labs and the and the the medical, you know, testing being done to find out what's really you know, what these compounds are all about. And just for example, I know you can't read this, those who are uh, watching, but a pure, up at the top here, you have wellness, uh, and these are ratios. Um, a pure CBD ratio that optimizes health benefits and provides body relaxation with minimal cognitive side effects. And there's a range on the bottom, you've got sleep. I guess this is the strong stuff. Uh, a 100 to one THC to CBD ratio that provides a relaxing and sedative effect with higher cognitive side effects and better suited for nighttime use. Um, what are the range of different situations where people might be coming in for medical use, uh, picking at the top or at the bottom? I mean, there are so many different, um, you know, uh, symptoms and ailments that uh, different compounds in cannabis can treat uh, that it's, it's pretty endless. It's pretty amazing what, uh, what people are able to treat, including 
you know, uh, symptoms of chemotherapy, and you know, because obviously people joke about the munchies, but right. when you can't eat or you can't keep food down, something like the munchies that people joke about is actually has huge medicinal benefits with very little side effects. So, and even the sleeping, uh, you know, tinctures and things, it, these are things you wake up from. There's no overdose for cannabis. There's no so. You know, and, and there's so many, this dovetails with so many other issues as far as reducing crime and, uh, you know, helping veterans and, you know, devoting police resources to actual violent criminals, which I think is pretty, pretty amazing. Adam, uh, tell us a bit about the work behind this, uh, the, the testing that went into figuring out each of these different levels and, and how you present that information to the customer who walks in these doors. Well, first of all, to the credit of the state of New York, <clears throat> as that program's evolved in the Department of Health, which oversees the program, I mean, it's required, right? And when I, when I talk about safer, healthier, happier, um, you know, those three kind of key components as we look at, you know, the betterment of the world that legal marijuana brings, that safer part is really part and parcel what you're talking about, right? Legal cannabis is something that will be overseen by whatever department in whatever state oversees it in New York, it's Department of Health, and they require, you know, substantial testing, arduous testing. You know, it even makes, sometimes it makes it hard to do business, but that's okay. Um, you know, that's what we want to be doing. We want to be providing people something that is, you know, tested, that is stamped, you know, um, that they can access and they know what they're getting. Because here's the, here's the bottom line on cannabis. People have been using cannabis for thousands of years and they'll continue to use it for thousands of more, whether it's legal or it's not, right? And so making it legal, right, we are making the world a safer place because you're allowing people to access something in a lawful manner um, with all the protections that come with that. Um, the other thing that I'd love to mention on the medical side is you know, we're really trying to start shifting the narrative away from recreational versus medical. You know, from a political standpoint, there are states that have recreational marijuana, you know, Canada's legalized recreational marijuana now, um, and there are other states like New York that's medical. You know, for us, it's all about wellness, right? Marijuana as a product is a wellness product. It makes, it allows people to live their best lives. Um, there is a place for pharma in all of this, um, and you know, I think that's a really important aspect. But outside of that, everything else that we're talking about here really does fit under that wellness category for MedMen. All right, the evolution of the branding of cannabis marijuana, et cetera. Adam Bierman, uh, the CEO of MedMen Enterprises. Thanks for being with us from out on the West Coast. Danny Danko is gonna stay with us. Once again, this is Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. We are live on Fifth Avenue uh, in Midtown New York at MedMen. This is a store that's focused on cannabis, 2,000 square feet. That's gonna cost somebody at least a million dollars a year. This is big business, big bets being placed on the day when recreational use of marijuana goes legal in Canada. And uh, we are streaming on Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. Joining us now, joining the conversation, Kate Rogers of CNBC. Kate, um, you got experience covering this. It wasn't too many days ago. I remember seeing you among quite a few leafy plants. <laughs> Hi, John. That's right. Yeah, I did get to take a trip to Canada in September to kind of talk to people within the industry ahead of that recreational legalization date. There I am in that lovely hairnet. Um, so we talked to a company called Oxley. <laughs> they have 14 different operations, and, and they basically want to create a consumer packaged goods brand that controls everything from the way uh, the plant is grown, uh, packaged, and then sold to people. And, you know, Everyone there was really, really excited about today, obviously, but they're also looking ahead to next year when things like edibles, which are so popular uh, in California, Colorado, Washington, et cetera, those will hit the market in Canada then and hopefully drive up sales even more for people who are really betting big in the space. Danny, how did you first become sort of an expert in this field? When, at what age did you first, did the spark first become lit, so to speak. <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> I've been involved in cannabis since a pretty very young age um, in the underground. And really, there was so much risk involved in those days. And to see where we've come now, it's pretty amazing. And uh, you know, one of the things that I, I'm the senior cultivation editor at High Time, so we encourage people to grow their own cannabis as well. Right. And one of the interesting things about this Canadian law is that it does allow for four plants 
per household. So nobody's going to get rich growing four plants, but you can actually grow a couple of pounds a year, um, which is more than enough for most, you know, people who are, you know, daily cannabis users. So, so four plants per household. That's right. I, I'm sure you studied this. Tell me how this works. Does that mean like four plants at any one time? So uh, can you have them on different schedules? I mean, well, it means you can get a grow tent or a grow box and basically start some seedlings uh, or clones that you can pick up from, you know, some of these companies that are uh, going to emerge out of this industry and some that are already uh, there. And, and you can grow your own plants uh, either from seed or clone. Um, those four plants, uh, you know, in three months or so, you can grow them and flower them and harvest them and you can make edibles with them and, and all the other, you know, ancillary products that, that come out of cannabis. How has this changed the world for high times? I, I imagine it might have gone from sort of an underground publication to, to an industry trade magazine. Right, right. Uh, well, we're, we're looking to go public right now. We're going, you know, public. Uh, they're collecting investments as we speak. So. Uh, it has changed a lot and, you know, like I said, we encourage people to cultivate and there's going to be a lot of that going on. I think uh, people are very worried about the, the corporate takeover of cannabis. Uh, <laughs> and I think one of the, you know, simple ways that you, 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 you can sort of pull yourself out of that equation is just to create your own or, or work with friends that, that, you know, create it for themselves and for others. Kate, as you were both telling people here in the U.S. about your travels and what you're covering and then talking to people out in Canada as they were gearing up for this day. What was the sense? What were you hearing? Were you hearing any reservations or fears about what this would bring? Were you, uh, I'm getting a lot of sly jokes. I, I don't know. I'm wondering uh, uh, just kind of what the pulse is in this moment. Well, I've been covering this space for about four years and just watching it grow, pun intended, uh, over, the, over that time period <laughs> has really been interesting. I mean, I've seen it go um, from not illegitimate, but taken less seriously, I think, to actually people really respecting the entrepreneurial aspect of, of what the space has to offer. I mean, we're now at 30 states in D.C. for medicinal use in the U.S., nine states in D.C. for recreational use. We have a few important ballot measures, including Michigan and North Dakota coming up in midterms. Also, people talking about New York and New Jersey uh, legalizing for recreational use. And I think Canada taking this huge step, many analysts that I spoke to said it will only help to further legitimize the industry and potentially move the needle um, a little bit quicker than anticipated here in the States. I mean, uh, there was even talk about President Trump looking at this issue again after midterm. So we'll definitely have to wait and see what happens. But I did want to follow up on one thing that Danny mentioned just about um, the commercial takeover of cannabis. I know many people don't necessarily want that to happen, but don't you think that also helps to legitimize the industry and make things like banking, for example, hopefully get a little bit easier as we see large multinational companies either getting in the space or expressing interest. Do you think that could be a potential good thing as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's inevitable, right? I mean, any industry, if you look at the end of alcohol prohibition, for instance, you know, it wasn't the mom and pops who flourished. It was larger companies that came in. Um, but we have the option still to brew our own beer and, you know, for ourselves, right, without mm -hmm. selling it to other people. And I think, you know, uh, what's interesting about Canada is that they're allowing this and it's an experiment that we're all going to be able to see. And if it's anything like the other experiments we've had in Colorado, in California, in Oregon, even Uruguay, um, you're going to see that, you know, any kind of fears that people had are unfounded. And not only that, but it's a benefit. It creates jobs. It helps the economy. It reduces crime, uh, the opiate abuse and, and alcohol abuse and DUIs. All of those things go down when you legalize cannabis. So. Danny, how much of the uh, cannabis industry of marijuana, the pot business, do you expect to go legit? Um, even, even in a place like Canada, right. as you look at the industry and the ways that people acquire it and the ways, you know, the, the stigma that exists and it's fading, but it's going to be right. around for a while no matter what, how much of that's going to go above ground? Right. I mean, that's the thing is with the overregulation that you get when you emerge, when you have an industry that's emerging like this, you have very serious regulation and it varies from state to state and province to province. And that regulation and that taxation in some cases um, leads people back to the black market or to the gray market. And so um, I think the important thing is that, you know, this is an herb. It's a flower that grows. It's not, uh, you know, something that, that has to be processed in a laboratory and all of that. So you know, people can create it. It's not, uh, you don't need fields and fields or acres and acres to, to make it. 
And so I think it is important that people understand that as well, that, that it, you know, it's more like a vegetable than it is like a, you know, a pharmaceutical. Right, except people probably enjoy it more than most vegetables. <laughs> That's uh, right, but the cost is, what, what I mean right, to say yes. is that the cost of it is in the risk. You know, the reason people were paying 300 or $400 for an ounce of cannabis is because of the risks that people took to get that to market. Right. But in the absence of that risk, it really costs very little to produce. And so I think, uh, you know, there's a big sort of, you know, rush to market right now, but, you know, people are going to come to find out. And we have in other states where there's been overproduction and a glut that you know, there has to be ways of dealing with that as well, which our industry has never seen. Yeah. Uh, once again, this is Fort Knox. We are at MedMen um, Medical Dispensary in Midtown Manhattan on Fifth Avenue. I'm here with Danny Danko, the senior editor. Now, it's cultivation editor also <laughs> at right. High Times. Uh, Kate Rogers has been with us from CNBC headquarters in Inglewood Cliffs. And right now I wanna bring in Deirdre Bosa from Canada. It's where it's all happening today in Newfoundland. Am I pronouncing that right, Deirdre? Newfoundland? That's what I was taught, but I'm, I'm American. You're Canadian. Newfoundland, you can tell you me got these things. It. <laughs> Newfoundland? Okay, good, good. You I was taught correctly. Bang on. Um, and let me tell you, I've heard, I've heard a lot of different ways in the last few days. <laughs> Not Newfoundland. But t tell me what you've been seeing there uh, as the clock struck midnight, as stores begin to open, and people begin to come into this new era there of legal recreational use of cannabis. <laughs> well, John, it's been wild. I mean, first of all, the weather has been crazy. It's sunny right now. There were huge storms last night, huge gusts of wind. But you know what? That did not stop hundreds of This is one of about 100 retail, licensed retail cannabis stores that are opening up across the country today. And because we're on the very east coast of Canada, because of the time change, the clock struck midnight first here. So there was a huge celebration. And take a look at this first sale. Uh, Three, two, okay. one. Yes. John, I love, I love watching that video because there's a real sense of pride here in Canada. Everyone we're talking to says that this is a historic moment. Many people never ever thought that they would see this in their lifetime. So there's a lot of celebrating here and there's been a steady stream of people throughout the day and we're in Newfoundland, but across the country, uh, some of the celebrations are just getting underway, particularly in the West, which is known uh, for its pot production. Now we've got, you know, stylish wooden tables there. We've got, you know, well-designed shopping bags. This isn't like a dark basement, not a puff of smoke in sight. <laughs> this could be an iPhone launch, you know, that we are watching video of. I've heard. What, what does that say? What does sure. that say about the image that this industry is setting up that's perhaps different from the image that most people have had of cannabis, marijuana, pot. Everybody's saying cannabis nowadays. Nobody's saying pot. I mean, there's been a wholesale change in the, the elements of this business that, that are being emphasized in the culture. Absolutely. You have high profile business people, politicians. Uh, when you talk about the stigma that it still has, a lot of that truly is gone in Canada. I mean, some will always remain, but the majority of the population has been in support of legalizing the recreational use of cannabis for a long time. So this was a long time coming, which is why there have been so many celebrations. And you're right about the store. These um, are very nice places. I've heard it. I've heard people say that it looks like an Apple Genius, but I've heard that it looks like a Banana Republic or a J. Crew or a Lululemon store. So um, it's not necessarily what you'd expect. But I will also tell you this, John. I spoke to a lot of people in the line, and some people don't believe me on this. I spoke to people in the line yesterday. I said, "Why are you here?" Are you going to continue to buy from these licensed retail stores? And a bunch of people said, not really. We're here for the novelty because this is a proud moment. But I'm going to go back to my dealer because the product is cheaper and it's better there. So, you know, whether this huh. eliminates the black market, very unlikely, at least at first. <coughs> Excuse me. Indeed, uh, Danny, we were just talking about this very question. And that leads me to a question that's going to be on a lot of people's minds. How do we... Uh, in this era of legitimizing cannabis, still protect people who are too young to have access to this. 
to, to what extent is the industry going to have to do um, marketing specifically targeted to that and make sure that it's effective? Because we see what's even happening with vape pens these days. If things get out of hand, there can be a backlash. Right. Well, you know, it's easier for people that are underage to get uh, cannabis on the black market than it is from a licensed dispensary, obviously, we've, and we see that over and over because it's in their best interest to, to keep that from happening, and they're carding people. Um, and there's different provinces with different ages now in Canada as well because I think Quebec wants to change that to 21, and, and some have 18, some have 19. So it is important, but I think that when you have a licensed uh, you know, producer and retailer, it becomes harder for underage kids to get cannabis. Um, so I think that that's important. And I think that you know, the, the uh, licensed producers and retailers have to be able to compete with the black market. Right. And that means they have to create a, a great product at a good price. Kate Rogers, jump in here. Sure, John. I was curious, actually, for Deirdre, when I was there, people were expressing some concerns over potential empty store shelves because of the novelty of it all and because people were so excited and, and so anticipating this open. Mm -hmm. Have you heard any talk of that? Because people mentioned that to me, and then they also mentioned concerns in years moving forward that potentially a lot of the product being grown would go to the rec market and then the medicinal market would wind up with a shortage. So are you hearing anything similar on the ground there? <laughs> Yes, actually. Hi. People are very nice here in Newfoundland. <laughs> um, on both of those points, Kate, actually, <laughs> supply, we are already seeing supply constraints. Um, some online stores are selling out of certain varieties. There's huge lineups. So far here at the store in Newfoundland, it seems to be okay. Um, but remember that there's only about 100 stores that have received licenses leading up. <laughs> it's going to happen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. They're very friendly there in Canada, I hear. But you're about, they yeah. are very friendly. They mean it with love. They mean. <laughs> yes, uh, and, and Deirdre Bosa being Canadian is is used to that. We have a little trouble with the <laughs> shot, so we'll uh, we'll we'll allow the the Canadians there to continue to celebrate. Danny, um, as we head into the rest of the year and looking at various other either states or countries that are looking to make legal moves, what's on your radar? Right, well, the industry is moving towards the east in the United States. I mean, we're seeing, now we have the whole west coast, uh, California, Oregon, and Washington have uh, adult use laws, <laughs> and now Canada. So you can travel now from Alaska all the way down the coast, uh, and be in a legal place all the way down. Um, it's basically a third of the country, you know, and that, that's moving its way east. So Massachusetts is changing. New Jersey has a, a Governor Murphy who's very, who ran on this, and it was really important um, to them, and that's gonna change, and that's gonna definitely make changes here in New York, because, you know, we're not gonna have people going over to New Jersey from New York for their cannabis. It's gonna have to happen here as well, and once it happens here, it's going to happen everywhere. So we're not going to have that? Is that just a cultural, you know, that, that changes the whole meaning of the bridge and tunnel crowd if people are leaving <laughs> New York to get cannabis in New Jersey. I mean, come on. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think we want to miss out on the revenue. I don't think we want to miss out on the jobs. I don't think we want to miss out on the reduce, reduction in crime. And just like they said earlier, it's, 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 if you re replace alcohol and opiates and things like that in your life with cannabis, you will live a longer life. There's not a doctor in the world who, who can deny that. There's not a politician who can deny that. And that's, that's a fact. And cannabis is, is the future. And if you don't like it, you're not gonna be very happy with the way things are going. My thanks to Danny Danko, High Times Magazine Senior Editor, Adam Bierman, MedMen Enterprises CEO, and of course, CNBC's own Kate Rogers, and Deirdre Bosa. Up next, Hotel Tonight co-founder and CEO, Sam Shank. Sam, thanks for coming by. Good to be here, John. So uh, I want to talk about hospitality. I want to talk about how your business has evolved from one narrow idea mm -hmm. into something a lot bigger. First, tell me what's the latest with Hotel Tonight, the new features that you're pushing on. You're on desktop now, mm -hmm. which is something a lot of companies didn't do at first. Instagram was like, no, no desktop. Now, desktop, what are you doing? Yeah, well, we started, and we can go over the, the evolution of the business, but we started with a very narrow focus, and then recently we've said, 
hey, we've got this really passionate customer base, we've got really passionate and dedicated hotels, they're asking us to do more, and people want Hotel Tonight to be the only way they book a hotel. So to do that, we need to be more uh, inclusive in terms of the features that we offer and the ability to book different types of, of ways. So the first thing we did about a year ago is expand from week ahead to 100 days ahead. Uh, and that's been really fantastic for our business in terms of getting people that need a little more flexibility. Um, or in the case of uh, my parents, they define last minute as two months out. <laughs> so they need a lot more flexibility, uh, but they're now able to use Hotel Tonight without any type of reservations. Um, and so we're able to get more, more share wallet. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hopefully lots of reservations. Hopefully of those reservations, of yeah. Um, the founding idea was literally a hotel tonight, right? It was like you, you got your phone, you're maybe in a place where you didn't expect to be, you need to stay the night, mm -hmm. you pull up the app and you get a better rate because the hotel has some empty rooms, mm -hmm. you have a surprise need, let's make a deal. You got it, exactly right. And it was such a great pitch for hotels to go in and say, we can help you sell inventory you otherwise wouldn't sell and we give you a very specialized way to do that that is delivering incremental revenue. And hotels said, sign me up. And then we went to customers and we say, we've got a new way of getting a great deal on a great hotel when you're feeling spontaneous, when you have a last minute need, when you might be out and then say, let's make a night out of tonight versus going back home. Mm -hmm. And we ended up hitting a really good product market fit on that. And we were able to, to develop a very strong and exciting business off of that. And then just like a lot of companies, when you start with one thing um, and you nail it, then you expand out from that. So Amazon started with books. They still sell a lot of books and they've evolved that category, but they've also broadened from there. And I look at the same, at our business the same way. We started with one thing that we did very well. We continue to do that incredibly well. And then we've expanded out. So we've expanded the booking window and then expanded the platforms that we're Price on. Priceline comes to mind as well in that same hospitality industry, they started out as, hey, kind of compete for my business here, who's going to offer the lowest price? And now, I mean, it's just, it's, it's another travel site. How important is it in that early stage to have a differentiator? I want to say a gimmick, but it's a gimmick. Um, and, and how did you, and you had a couple co-founders, what was the genesis of that? What were you doing before? How did it come together? Yeah, this is my third online travel company, and uh, so I learned a lot about the industry and was doing the second company, which was a travel deal search engine called DealBase, it's still up and running. And I said, there's mobiles coming out. What is mobile going to do different for the industry? And this is going to be a big platform shift. I started thinking about mobile first companies. And if you started from scratch with mobile, there's going to be all these new businesses that come out of these platform shifts, the same way that social created Facebook and the same way that the internet created Expedia, Priceline and Booking, et cetera. Um, in our industry. And so I started thinking about what will be new with mobile and it's going to be, now it's called on demand. I was thinking of it uh, as impulsive booking. Uh, so booking when you didn't have your computer anymore. Um, and we got together and we started thinking about what that was. And I'm a big believer in when you start something um, to stand out in the market, uh, to really get people to say, wow, that's interesting. You've got to be better, but you also have to be different. And the difference for us was about very much constraining the problem around this tonight use case. So we offered only three hotels, so made it very easy. Um, we've expanded since then to 15 hotels, but we offered a curated selection of great hotels. We um, only had uh, hotel rooms for tonight. Um, we, and then we were only on mobile, which was a crazy way to launch a business back then. We, our website said, go download the app, which at that point, I think it was Uber and Instagram were the only companies that had that strategy. And, um, and so it made people say, wow, this is something different. This is something new. This is something I need to pay attention to. This is something really um, ultimately worth my, my time. And, and what that did for us was it allowed people to um, use word of mouth to uh, carry the message of the company. Um, we didn't have any money to market. We were spending like $100 a day on marketing. So how do we get marketing? It's by having something different and new. That created a lot of buzz. Um, and both on the hotel side, they started buzzing about us, and then definitely on the consumer side. Uh, what year was that? That was 2011. 2011, the smartphone is relatively new. Um, I'm not sure how different a position travel itself is in, but what were some of the challenges that you faced kicking off the idea that are maybe different now for, for people who are trying to figure out, I don't know, maybe what the, what the watch form, smart watch form of, of uh, uh, travel booking is going to be. 
I'd say, first of all, it's incredibly hard to start a company in online travel. And the, by doing it three times, I'm sort of a glutton for punishment. <laughs> and the, uh, um, I, uh, every time I started a company in travel, I say I'm not going to start a company in travel. Uh, but the reason I did um, Hotel Tonight is that I saw it as a mobile commerce company and a way to change um, the, it had the opportunity to change the way people book travel, which ended up, we ended up influencing and impacting. Um, and that was what was exciting for me. Um, and then the hospitality space is a space I knew very well and, and the founders and I had, had worked in it for a while so we were able to connect the dots before others were. But it's a very difficult category for a number of reasons. Um, first, you're dealing with incumbents that have massive uh, advertising budgets so you have to find a different way to create demand. Um, you also then have customers that don't book that often. It's episodic, it's low frequency of use, about two bookings a year on average. So getting people um, to develop a pattern of behavior that will then lend itself to um, being loyal to your product is very hard. Hmm. And then lastly, there's a lot of downside of thing if you try service and it doesn't work out. So for example, you order food on Grubhub for the first time and it's late. Well, okay, you go down and get something else or order something else or uh, you know, worst case order a pizza from Domino's. It's not the end of the world. Whereas if you have, uh, you book a, a hotel and something happens, then your night is, is ruined that you might have to like, you know, uh, find alternative uh, situations. It, it can be like a lot more stressful for someone. It, so it's higher risk. So the switching costs are much higher uh, from a customer standpoint. Those still exist, and that's why I tell people don't start a company in travel because <laughs> it's very, very hard. Um, you're based in San Francisco. Hotel Tonight is. Uh, I actually used Hotel Tonight um, a couple months ago. We were on vacation in Hawaii, or we were going to be uh, on vacation. Uh, staying at a timeshare, but then our flight was the latest of the group that we were with. Mm -hmm. So I was like, eh, why don't we just book a room for one day? Mm -hmm. So that we have a place, we can go to the beach, we can shower and change before going to, to the airport, end up using it for that. Great use case. How have you seen the reasons why people are using Hotel Tonight mm -hmm. change over time? How is it different from uh, kind of the, the bigger old guard sites like your Expedias, like your Travelocities, mm -hmm. uh, Pricelines? Mm -hmm. Yep. So. We see that our travelers, um, first of all, it definitely we started with the spontaneous use case. And we see our travelers really gravitating towards that. And it's a combination of people that were booking last minute to begin with out of either preference uh, because of the flexibility or procrastination and the necessity of it. Um, and then we started seeing people that were being spontaneous that were saying, hey, I can find a great hotel at a great price. I'm going to use this for something that I wouldn't have done otherwise, like a staycation in New York or a weekend getaway to Napa and we started creating and unlocking new, new use cases. And that gets people into Hotel Tonight. And then as they find out how easy it is, they pick up new use cases. Um, so uh, booking a few days out for a business trip. Um, and now we're even seeing people booking months ahead for a two week trip um, and using Hotel Tonight for all of their travel because they like the, the good deals. Um, we have really great values on Hotel Tonight and the best pricing good hotels, very easy to use, and then it's a lot of fun to, uh, fun to use this, uh, as well. The, um, we have a great loyalty and rewards program, so that gets people in. Um, and so we've started with this one use case that we've sort of invented, um, this unlocked this in, impulsive use case mm -hmm. and spontaneous use case, and then broadened from that while still retaining on that core. You guys are profitable now. We are, we are. You want to go public? Uh, it's something that, you know, with the profile that we have, and uh, I'm not uh, immune to the news of the recent uh, IPOs. And yeah, a lot of IPOs at, doing well. I look days. at where we are, and, and we could be in that category too. Now, it's something that uh, I have to decide if it's the right thing for the company or not, but it's, uh, it's a testament to the team that we have that profile that that is an option for us. Do you think that today's employees, you got a lot of young employees in San Francisco, do they join a company like yours expecting that, or hoping to, to strike it rich, to join the next Google, Amazon, et cetera? Or has the mindset shifted a bit in the conversations that you have recruiting talent? You know, it's, uh, if we're attracting people that are just trying to, to strike it rich, then we're not attracting the right people. And that's something we test for. So that's certainly part of the journey of Hotel Tonight is financial reward. But I think the main reason people join is because they love the category, they love the culture that's very collaborative, and they love the, the challenges that they and the opportunities that they're going to get. 
Um, and that's important because day to day, that's what it's about. It's about um, growing your skills, about helping you achieve your long-term goals. And we have those conversations. I have that with my team and with others on the team and encourage our managers to have that conversation with the team members uh, that they manage to, to say, all right, where do you want to go and how can we help you get there with what we're doing in terms of our goals as well as a company. And that's what gets people involved. I've been in the New York area for almost five years now. Before that, I was in the Bay Area, um, moved there almost 20 years ago. You've been there a little bit longer. How have you seen the place change? Because when I got out there, it, it felt like, yes, Silicon Valley had this sense that it was changing the world. There was also this sense that it was kind of isolated on the West Coast. People were thinking different kinds of thoughts in New York and DC, and for the most part, they weren't interfering in Silicon Valley's business. Mm -hmm. Now, Silicon Valley is seen as being very influential in politics. Um, there's talk about regulating it. Uh, there's talk about certain elements of, of innovation being out of control. What's your take? I think Silicon Valley's and, and the Bay Area is growing up a bit. It's recognizing its place in the world and the power that it has has in the world and the responsibility that comes with that power. Uh, so I think it's a very good thing. I think that I work very hard to make sure that our team recognizes that we live in a, a very unique place in the world and that our customers don't all live there and our partners don't all uh, exist there. So we do a an executive road trip uh, every six months where I take my executive team and we go to a different city. We spend time working on strategy but also meeting with hotel partners and then also meeting with our top customers that live in that city. We're doing it next week in New Orleans and that's going to be a very different city, very different point of view than Silicon Valley and that's really important I think for business leaders to, to keep in mind because we're not just serving the Bay Area which is a unique and special place but very different than the rest of the country and the rest of the world. Do you think we're going to get another mega category like the web browser, the smartphone? I mean, th there was talk about uh, the, the tablet being that, but mm -hmm. it seems like more than anything, the PC's resurgence mm -hmm. and people kind of returning to uh, the desktop model, companies like yours saying we were mobile only, now we're, we're going desktop as well. That's a bit more of a story than the tablet is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, my, my rule on this is that the platforms that device-wise that emerge are always getting smaller in size. Um, so you go from desktop to laptop to web or to smartphone, um, and it's not going to be something bigger then. It's not going to be a big TV. Um, it's going to be something that's more portable, more convenient. Um, I think it might be glasses. I don't know. I think it might look more like a uh, the the AirPods and uh, earbuds. Um, that's sort of the form factor that I see as a next platform. We're going to be uh, booking hotels by voice? Not by voice, it'll have some sort of visual component, but it'll be at that, that size and that portability and that level of embeddedness. Why um, not? Why aren't we going to be saying Siri or Alexa, book me a hotel? I, uh, hotels are a visual thing, um, and a picture's worth a thousand words, and maybe if you're booking the same hotel over and over and over again, we don't see that with our customers. They actually like to experience a new hotel, hmm. and they like to see what that hotel's going to be like and get excited about it. And there's certain things that are, are uh, okay for doing via voice, like more transactional things, like set a timer, or you know, where is my package, or when is the check-in for my hotel, or tell the hotel that I'm going to be checking in late. That's fine. Um, but for things that are visual, that are subjective, uh, voice doesn't deliver. Globally, where do you see the most interesting emerging market for a business like yours? Uh, I mean, China is so uh, amazing and important that it's hard to you know, ignore and not answer the question with that. Now, in is that terms people of going to China or people in China coming here? I think it's, it's uh, people within, traveling within China, that's uh -huh. where, been where a lot of the activity is, and then people going from China, um, and that um, emergent behavior of people, tra uh, the outbound traveler from China. I think the middle class, very, the middle Chinese class. traveler. So yeah. a lot of travelers there, there's a lot of wealth being created, and they want to see the world. Um, and that, uh, I think, will be you know, played out over the next uh, you know, several years um, as, as that develops, and, and there's good opportunities for companies like ours that have great relationships with hotels here in the United States, um, as well as uh, because they're inherently a, a mobile, their first computers in China, the, the population there, went right to a, a smartphone. They didn't get a computer. So that's the uh, preferred booking platform and that's where we specialize. Is that customer's approach to an app and an experience like yours basically the same or have you noted any differences in what the customer wants, um, 
what they're looking to do, how long they're willing to, to stay, what they're looking to spend? Two differences. Um, one is that instead of having an app for every category, um, in China you have a few mega apps that do a lot of different things. So it's very important to, for companies that are going into China to, or in China to get distribution on a few apps. Um, so it's a very, it's, the playing field is very different there and the way of competition is different. In terms of traveler behavior, what we've uh, seen and heard is that the first trip they do out, uh, outside of China um, is with a tour group and it's planned and it's organized. Then the second time they get confidence and they want to uh, control it themselves and fine tune it and so they'll, they'll book it themselves a la carte. Um, and that's where it gets really interesting. Yeah, so you're looking for the people who are coming their second time. Sure. How do you find them? Uh, through partnerships mostly. Yeah. Right. All right. So uh, perhaps IPO. Other than that, what's next for you and Hotel Today? Now we've got uh, a team that is so innovative and we are going to be continuing to push on the gas on innovation and make the hotel booking experience better in terms of simpler, better values and more fun. We've got a great roadmap for that. So one of the things we just did, for example, it's called the Daily Drop. And it's the first ephemeral deal in, uh, in hotel booking. And the way it works is you find out where, you say where you want to go and when you want to go and you see if a Daily Drop's available. When it is, you swipe it to unlock it. We show you the best hotel for you uh, based on what you've looked at before at a 30% or more discount. Um, and then you have 15 minutes to book it. Um, so hotels are offering this because they can get a great customer, they can offer a rate that's very controlled and fenced, and then customers really benefit with a great deal. That one has been a huge home run for us in terms of getting people excited about hotel tonight and filling rooms for hotels. So that's the type of innovation we're going to keep um, bringing forth to the market, and we're going to be taking market share from our two competitors in Booking and Expedia, and we've been taking a lot of market share from them and we're going to continue to do so. So you're bringing the time constraint back but just in a different way. In a different way, yep. Um, talk to me, we didn't get into this when we were talking about the origins of Hotel Tonight, but about your origins. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, oh. and then went to UVA. Um, and when I was growing up, I was- So Alexis Ohaney in there when you were there? <laughs> I, I'm a little older than him. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so am I. But yeah. he, was the, he was the first guest on this podcast. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right. Well, we got that in common, All right? right. Um, and uh, when I was growing up and I, wanted, I was enamored with, with movies and big Hollywood movies and I wanted to be a big budget action movie director. <laughs> and so James Cameron was one of my idols, for example, and then uh, ended up getting a job with Wes Craven on this movie called Scream and mm. went to Hollywood. And what did you do on Scream? I was an assistant. So yeah. the good days were reading scripts about like what the next movie was going to be. <laughs> the bad days were getting laundry and going to the post office. Um, a lot more bad days than good days. Um, but I uh, learned a lot, ultimately decided that Hollywood wasn't the place where I could make the most impact in the world. It's not very entrepreneurial, as it turns out, which was surprising to me. I thought everybody there would be wanting to make movies on the weekends, and instead people were more there for the lifestyle, um, which is fine. Um, it just wasn't a place for me to, to be able, to, a platform for me to build things. Um, so I went up to the Bay Area then, started working for internet companies, learning what I needed to learn with the, the goal of initially, uh, eventually starting my own, own thing. And when you went up to the Bay Area, Tech was hot, like yeah. overheating almost. Yeah. What are we talking, 97-ish? Yep, 96, 97 was there, yeah. And it was just at the beginning of the bubble. It was, uh, there were still not many people on the internet when I got there. Uh, Yahoo had gone public, um, Amazon had just gone public. They were each worth about $300 million. Um, and then it started taking off right after that. Yeah, I remember Pointcast, is that Point what Cast was Pointcast was big, was, yeah. Uh, was big. Knight Ritter, which I had starting to work for at the time, intern for, was, was investing in that and looking at that. So uh, how did the dot-com bust influence the way you thought about building a business? Uh, it was really hard for me when it busted because I had uh, a great career up to that point and was, was on, on a tear. I'd worked for Excite. Um, which was a, a search engine that's most known for not buying Google for a million dollars. And then went to price comparison shopping. Um, and uh, I built one of those at, or started to build one of those at Tite and then went to Nextag, um, which was a price comparison shopping yeah, engine that. that had a good run. Um, and things were going really well and then it all ended. And so I did a lot of soul searching, went to business school for a few years. And when I was there, then I saw Friendster came out. Um, that's sort of the point cast of social media. Um, but I was really uh, fired up again about the, uh, the internet and internet media and uh, internet businesses and business models. And I 
looked at what was interesting to me in addition to that um, in terms of a category, and it was travel. Um, looked at the category, it's a massive category, trillions of dollars or a trillion dollars in, in, uh, in sales. And I was like, this is a category that I can make uh, a difference in because there hasn't been a lot of innovation in it. Now, there's a reason for that, which is why I you know, tell people not to, to start companies in, in online travel, but uh, it still was the area that I decided to go after. Your advice to either entrepreneurs or potential entrepreneurs who are maybe in a similar position to where you were 20 years ago. Maybe the economy's good now, they're building their career, they're at a company that they think is doing pretty well. Eventually though, there's going to be a downturn. Mm -hmm. What should they do now to prepare? For, uh, look at the company they're at and see what, um, is, what, is it counter cyclical or is it cyclical or is it stable? So if you're at a company that has recurring streams of revenue, probably going to be fine. If it's a lot of discretionary consumer spend on entertainment or advertising, advertising generally gets hit um, in a downturn. Um, we don't know for sure what's going to happen uh, for a hotel tonight because we've never lived through a downturn, but I'm very confident that we're counter-cyclical and that's proven out with our competitors historically. Um, and so I'm, uh, I'm not anxiously awaiting a downturn by any means, but I do feel that we have a, a counter-cyclical nature that will be uh, interesting to lean into um, when, and, uh, and benefit from uh, and help our hotel partners and customers when that does happen. Wow. We continue to watch these new ideas you guys are coming up with for uh, linking people with places they want to stay. Yeah. Sam Shank, thanks for being with us in uh, Fort Knox. Thanks for having me. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's a brand new and great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and my other work on CNBC. And that's the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the newsletter. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. As a matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of the first part of this episode, or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.